Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say that we have Tom Kestner on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Flight of the Century, Charles Lindbergh and the Rise of American Aviation. You know exactly who Charles Lindbergh is, and for good reason, because he's still famous. And at the time, the time that he flew the spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic from New York to Paris. He was, or rather became shortly thereafter, the most famous person in the world. This is really a key element in Lindbergh's life and in the life of the United States or the history of the United States and the world because Lindbergh represents the moment at which celebrity became a kind of dominant force in American culture. And I guess I would also say world culture. Lindbergh, as you probably know, didn't handle celebrity very well, which made it all the more interesting. This is also a kind of story, The Fallen Celebrity, that we've become very used to. Lindbergh is probably the first example of it. Tom does a terrific job of telling the story of Lindbergh's life from his early childhood in Minnesota to the flight across the Atlantic and then afterwards in his kind of long and dramatic decline. I really encourage you to go out and read the book because I enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed talking to Tom today very much. So, Without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Tom. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well. How are you today? Okay. It's a nice day out here. Well, well uh, I'm glad to hear that. I should tell our listeners that we have Tom Kestner on the show, and we'll be talking about his wonderful book, really wonderful book, The Flight of the Century, Charles Lindbergh and the Rise of American Aviation. As I was telling Tom in the pre-interview, this is a really fantastically written book. Tom has a, a narrative gift that I think very, very few of us have. I certainly don't have it. Um, my writing style is uh, a little bit like, I don't know, I told Tom in the pre-interview that it was more like a PowerPoint presentation than <laughs> anything, anything. I got that, but okay. Oh, come on. I just, no, really, it's a, very, it's a very impressive book, and it's absolutely beautifully written. And as I say, you have a you have a terrific narrative gift, and I, I really encourage people to go thank out and, so and and pick it up. Yeah, because it's well, a you know a lot of people will know the story of Lindbergh, but I think that the, you know in your retelling, it's really um it's really it's really just a marvelous a marvelous read. So why don't we begin the interview, Tom, by having you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, my name is Thomas Kessner. I was born actually on the other side of the ocean. I was born in Germany after World War II in Bergen-Belsen um, and came over to the United States in 1950. Uh, educated here and uh, did my undergraduate work at Brooklyn College where I became fascinated with history, particularly because of the, the specific, I guess, because of the, how much... Uh, my parents, who had been in concentration camps and who underwent the turmoil of World War II, how much of part of, of the previous decade's history, uh, I mean, previous period's history they had been. And it fascinated me, a uh, story full with the lives of people, leaders, people who 
but common people as well. And uh, one of the first things that I paid attention to in my own graduate work was the history of people living in cities, but also immigrants who came to the United States. So uh, I did that work at Columbia after graduating from Brooklyn College and uh, did my Ph.D. work in Columbia under a man who really uh, opened my eyes to the to the way one could do history about local areas, about cities, and about the, the metropolitan regions that had developed in the United States, and that's Kenneth T. Jackson, who is mm-hmm. uh, perhaps the outstanding urban historian in the United States today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How... Uh how, that's really quite an, a success. That's, that's really an American success. That's Horatio Alger right there. You just told us you're Horatio Alger. I'm not going to. Oh, okay. You don't have to say it, but I'll say it for you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. But, uh, actually, the first, the first book, that, uh, is, which was my dissertation that was published, talks about the Horatio Alger myth in the United States and about the, um, uh, the uh, story of immigrant mobility. It compares Italians and Jews in New York City in a, a critical period between 1880 and 1915 mm-hmm. and tries to understand wh- why it was and how it was that this, these two immigrant groups um, ultimately made it in the United States and, and what that period was like uh, as, as uh, a, a, a time when immigrants were able to come, start at the very bottom, and, and make their way up. I just must have been terrifically engaging for you as an immigrant yourself. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I envy that experience very much. You know, I, I did most of my work on people that have been dead for 400 years who came from another <laughs> continent. I, you know, I don't identify with them at all. Let me tell you that. Well, there is one benefit. They can't complain and they, no, can't, they, can't, yeah. you know, they can't tell you that you've done it wrong. Yeah, arguments with the dead. I never lose. Yeah. I come out on top every true. time. So why don't you tell us how you came to write this book? Well, I have been... I've written uh, four uh, books about uh, various aspects of urban history, and um, okay, was looking for something that would give me a chance to to do a little bit more of a narrative type of of uh, a piece of work. Um, and I had written a biography of Fiorello LaGuardia um, two books ago, and I wanted to go back to trying a, a biographic form. And um, looking around, I thought we had transferred from an age of heroes. To uh, what seemed to be an age of celebrities, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, Charles Lindbergh was on the cusp of that change. Yeah. I mean, here was somebody who absolutely clueless about what the impact of what he was doing when he took that flight across the ocean what was going to be. He was concerned throughout that flight with what was going to happen when he lands because he didn't have a visa. He had no idea. <laughs> that um, he would have a place to stay, and he was concerned about that. And when he came to Paris, after flying across the ocean and and doing what nobody had ever done before, in fact, what six people who had recently tried, who were outstanding aviators, had died trying, when he finally came to Paris, he saw all these lights, and he figured he must be in the wrong place when he was over the airport, because what what were all these lights doing in the airport? The airport was supposed to be dark, isolated, secluded, and he was going to land there, and then he was going to try to figure out a way to, to, to take care of himself, and instead he sees all these lights, he turns back. He turns back for about 10 minutes until he finally decides, yes, this must be Le Bourget Airport near Paris. And what were all those lights? Those were cars that were parked outside as hundreds of thousands of people had made their way to, to the airport. Um, it was a transforming moment for the people of Paris, but it was something entirely unexpected on Carl Lindbergh. But from the, that point forward, he would be the world's greatest celebrity. More more pictures, more newsprint, more 
video uh, um, and movie tone uh, 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 footage than anybody else in the world, and um, and then he would have to deal with it. But uh, I think that was a, a kind of transforming moment because uh, we've kind of moved away from the age of heroes to the age of celebrities. And I was I, I thought that that would be you know Lindbergh would be an interesting uh, figure to help me figure that out. Also. Uh, this was the time when um, Philip Roth's book about um, the plot against America, in which he uh, imagined Bloomberg oh, yeah. running yes, for the exactly. presidency. Yes. I haven't read it, but I know just what you're talking about. Yeah, it was exactly when that was a bestseller. So obviously that brought uh, Lindbergh to my attention. And lo and behold, at the end of the book, uh, the person who is the the uh, the hero, as opposed to the Lindbergh prot- protagonist, is Fiora LaGuardia, <laughs> someone who might study. So, you know, this caught my attention. And I figured... Yeah. And there's just one last thing, and I think that if we look around, uh, we there's a great deal of lip service to democratic ideals, but there's this American tropism toward rightist solutions, um, and and uh, and I think that that fit with what I read in the book, you know, the plot against America, the way that Lindbergh was portrayed. Now I want to know more about this guy and yeah. about how heroes work in this country. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that all of that, the birth of what we might think of as a star system, uh, writ large, uh, comes. Uh, out very clearly in the book, uh, and and it's um it's really ma- I mean I again I'm sorry about all these compliments. It's really masterful how you teach us that lesson and then tell us the story as well simultaneously. I tend to be so didactic. You know I'm just going <laughs> to maybe it's because I'm a Midwesterner. I don't know. I'm just going to tell you the punchline right away. I'm well, give you the I, I've got to control that. I have that tendency as well. But I thank you very much. <laughs> but no, it's really it really, it really is very nice. So why don't we begin telling um, uh, Lindbergh's story? Uh, well, well, where is he from, and, and what was his family like, and things like this? Interestingly, Lindbergh is also from the Midwest, uh, Minneapolis. Um, I'm sorry, um, Little Falls, Minnesota. Um, I don't know how I got Minneapolis in there, but uh, he he um, his his childhood was something that I was very curious about because I had thought about this hero, Midwestern hero, uh, kind of all American boy, and he he grew up he grew up in a broken home. His father was a congressman. His father was a very wealthy person, and then he he lost a lot of his money. Um, he lost his first wife, married a woman who could never get happy, never be happy out in the Midwest. She came from Detroit. Um, she was miserable. They um, after the first few years uh, of marriage, Charles was the only son. Um, they had uh, a sham marriage totally uh, separated. Uh, the father lived in Washington, where he served in Congress. And Lindbergh grew up alone with his mother, and he grew up as uh, someone who loved solitude, mm-hmm. someone who could not mix uh, with too many friends. He enjoyed much more the outdoors, uh, being alone. In, in, uh, and I guess perhaps this had a lot to do with the way that, that uh, uh he was the son of a congressman who had to keep the story uh, secret, and that mm-hmm. secret was that, that you know that his parents were divorced or virtually divorced, and he'd actually seen uh, his mother um, um, threatened to kill his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was it was a, a broken a broken home, and one in which uh, he he um, as I say grew up totally isolated, uh, but he was fascinated by machines. He was fascinated at first by the smallest little things that he was able to put together and take apart. This was after all the age of of, of um, uh, people who who like to uh, tinker, and and uh, those tinkers. Uh, I mean, perhaps 
in, in this period, as in no other time, those thinkers became innovators in machinery and in technology, and, and Lindbergh was fascinated by the kind of work that they did. Um, he would he drove a motorcycle from the age of, of uh, 10, and became quite proficient at taking pieces of parts of it apart, and uh, by 12, he was driving a car. And, and in those days, when you drove a car, you had to know what to do with it once it stopped or it didn't work. And he became, he was technically and, 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 and in terms of mechanically, he was very, he was uh, precocious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the word that comes to mind, precocious. He reminds me a little bit of, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, uh, sure. we interviewed a fellow that uh, wrote a really excellent biography. I can't remember his name right now. Um, uh, about John Muir. And John Muir was the same way. He became really uh-huh. fascinated with gadgets. Uh-huh, and he uh-huh. spent his entire, you know, he just loved gadgets, and he built all kinds of crazy things. And you know, he was he was a Scotsman who transplanted to America, <laughs> but uh, yeah. he was he also he had a similar sort of fascination at about the same time with with gadgetry, and, and went on to great fame in a different. Uh, yeah, very different. Uh, yeah, different yeah, very field, different. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. No, I, I think that that uh, part of this comes out later in life when Lindbergh is somebody who has great trouble uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships. He he definitely identifies much better with machines, and and, uh, and does much better in solitude than he does in in uh, in kind of social mm-hmm. situations, mm-hmm. or even in in terms of marriage. I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later mm-hmm. on. But um, while he was precocious in terms of mechanics, he was not he was not a student at all. Uh, he went to twelve different schools. Uh, he went out of college. And I think uh, that if not for aviation, he was somebody who probably would not have had too great a future, despite his strong, uh, you know, his, his abilities and his ambition. And he probably this was the one thing that he that he liked. He, he couldn't force himself to study. He couldn't force himself to write. He uh, he had a great discipline, but it had to be hitched to something that that uh, engaged him. And aviation in those days engaged him. It was. Um, it was the early days of aviation when uh, anybody who wanted to could get into a plane and take it up into the sky, and and the sky offered him a, a very different dimension. On Earth, he was not doing too well, but in the sky, he was alone. He could see further than anybody else. He felt this enormous sense of superiority in terms of what it felt like to be in a different dimension from where the rest of the world was, which he looked down upon these people as kind of ants crawling around the earth while he had the superior vision once he got up in the air. Uh, and that was a, a full mystique about people up who were flying. Um, but uh, they might put as, as great an uh, uh, intellectual veneer on it as they wanted to, but these guys were wild people. Uh, they, they were uh, taking great chances, and a good many of them died when they took, took these planes up in the air because these were unsophisticated machines. Um, he became a barnstormer. Uh, that is to say that he would do tricks, climb out on the, on the wings of planes. He could climb from one plane to another. He did that for a couple of years and then he figured that he might as well learn how to really fly a plane rather than to just do tricks and collect a little bit of money because this was not going to be the way. He was fired by an, an ambition to do something that would be, that would catch the attention of his local community, but also the larger world. Mm-hmm. And and this is not going to be the way to do it. Uh, making a few bucks, uh, hanging out with people, and he had a strong moral sense. Uh, he he was raised with it. He accepted it. He was a, a fellow who was hanging out with uh, aviators uh, who loved to go whoring and drinking and smoking and 
and he avoided every one, every one of those activities, saying that these just weakened him. If he if he was going to abandon himself to these sorts of things, he was not going to be able to do what he wanted to do. He never he never actually even went out with with a woman until uh, he was 25. He uh, paid. He's kind of aesthetically committed to the notion of aviation. And there's another half of this notion about aviation. It was not just that he's going to get up in the sky and see further than anybody else. It was this notion that aviation allowed um, allowed nations and allowed individuals to kind of break down walls. I don't know if uh, uh, most people would remember, but I'm old enough to remember this, the early days of the computer and the Internet, and the notion that there was going to be, this was going to allow us to transcend our limitations, to transcend <laughs> yeah. national boundaries, to transcend everything so that we could be all part yeah. of one great world. And this was going to create yeah. peace and, and a kind of a, dia, a, 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 a conversation among all peoples from all corners of the earth. And everybody's going to, he saw aviation exactly that way. He bought into this notion of the gospel of, uh, uh, you know, the winged gospel, the notion that that uh, aviation was going to transcend barriers between nations. Mm-hmm. All this despite the fact that aviation had begun to be used in World War One and had fried a good number of people yeah. already uh, in dogfights and, and a number of other things. But um, he thought that that was a mis, you know, a misstep. But yeah. instead, aviation was going to do great things. It was going to bring peace to the world, mm-hmm. and so it captured his imagination. And he went off to get training in um, <clears throat> army, army aviation school. Uh, did very well for the first time in his life. He surprised himself. He was able to put himself into a course of study uh, in ways that he had never been able to do before. Studied to pass exams, and when he didn't do well on the first set of exams, and, and, and if you don't do well after uh, a couple of weeks, you could wash out, uh, as a good many of those who were in that early class did. He buckled down, and he um, he ultimately he graduated. When he graduated and got his wings, he he was at the top of his class. So uh, this was somebody who had one major ambition. Uh, later, he would have others, but it was one at a time. He was entirely focused. He was a person who worked in solitude, a person who did not uh, carouse, uh, and, and a person for whom aviation meant everything. Religion, he, he discarded. Um, politics, which was what his father was about, he discarded. None of these he thought could bring about what aviation could. could. So this captured his imagination entirely. He trained himself, and ultimately he became one of those who, who flew um, uh, flew the um, a, a small little airline that was uh, centered in uh, I call it an airline. It was actually uh, uh, a business that was made up of, of three or four discarded planes that, that were <laughs> you know it was just, just one step ahead of the junk pile. And what that, what this business did was to deliver the mail because the one area of of uh, in the United States where aviation had a possibility after World War One. Just mentioned what happened in a second, but was the was the airmail system that was run under the uh, under the postal system in the United States? They ha- they uh, beginning uh, be, you know 1918 they started to use airplanes to more quickly deliver the mail across the United States, and this was the one place where aviation had a possibility because after World War One, where the United States had spent actually a billion dollars to develop huh. an air force and to invest in in, in, in air flight. Uh, under the press of the war, 
the United States abandoned that entirely. That is to say, government funding was stopped. Every effort to, to control even licensed airline, uh, airplane flying was stopped. The United States stepped back from having anything to do with flying uh, as a government project. In Europe, that was not true, so that Europe went way ahead of the United States in terms of, of uh, the use of commercial flight. In the United States, the only thing that, that uh, allowed people like Lindbergh, who were in love with flying, to make a living was either barnstorming or getting a job with the with delivering the airmail. Uh, and the problem with delivering the airmail is that you were not flying passengers. So the pressure on you to deliver was enormous because uh, worst comes to worst, if you crashed, all you lost was a sack of mail and yourself, but you were expendable. And in fact, um, a great numbers, as many as a third of those who flew for the airmail uh, perished mm-hmm. because of the dangerous conditions. What this proof for Lindbergh was a tremendous um, training grounds. Uh, he flew uh, night night flights even when there were no lights. He had to make his way across. He parachuted out three times to save his life. In fact, he was the first uh, in, in uh, doing training. He and one other person uh, were the first to drop out of a plane with parachutes and, and be saved. Um, and then he did this two or three other times. Uh, had he come two years earlier, he, he would never have made it. He would have been among those uh, the casualties. Um, so that leads up to his uh, situation in 1926 when he is um, flying for Robertson Airlines, uh, flying airmail regularly between St. Louis and uh, Chicago and um, living among these um, uh, happy-go-lucky uh, daredevils and he realizes this is not much of a future, and he was not going to make his mark by doing this, and he was not going to make much money either. Um, what many of the better pilots were doing at this point was paying attention to uh, all kinds of contests. Uh, one of the ways in the United States that, uh, in a kind of free enterprise system, where the United States government was not subsidizing research and development in, in any uh, area or not in most areas it was not and certainly not in flight uh, one of the ways that those who were interested in flight were able to um, push it ahead and this was true across the, around the world as well was to create contests so that the contest for the best motor the contest for uh, the best uh, airplane chassis contest for those who could fly the longest way created a, a system of research and development. The only problem, the only difference was that those who did the research and those who did the development did it out of their own pockets and at their own risk. And if it worked, then it became absorbed into the industry. If it didn't, then there was another lesson that the industry learned. And all this was done at no expense of the government, no expense of the taxpayer. So um, these these um, contests were a regular part of, of, uh, of aviation. And one of the Outstanding contest was the contest that was launched by a, a New York hotel owner, uh, Raymond Ortig, who came from France and loved his home country and, and cherished the notion of an of a alliance between the United States and France. Uh, that alliance had become eroded a great deal after, after World War One because of uh, the um, disputes and, and uh, um, disagreements over post-war policy and over debt that remained after the war. And uh, he thought that an, uh, a contest for a nonstop flight between New York City and Paris would be great. That that would uh, 
first of all, it would uh, bind the two cities together. It would bind the two nations together. It would show what possibilities existed for airlines, I mean, for air flight, uh, well beyond having this as a kind of sport diversion for people who wanted to go up for a couple of minutes and look down at the earth. And that it's pretty much what it was. It was that plus barnstorming where Phil, uh, you know, they would go to carnivals, uh, carnivals and, and uh, these guys like Early Lindbergh would thrill them with uh, their exploits. But the, the, this was an exotic machine. It was not regular. It was not part of the regular way in which Americans thought about travel. And Ortig wanted to advance uh, aviation in that regard in the United States. And, um, and so he put up this this um, contest, he put up $25,000 for the first person, um, first flight that makes it across nonstop from New York to Paris or Paris to New York. And um, this was something that proved impossible in the first, he did this in 1919. It proved impossible for the first five years uh, to 1924 because the engines to be able to do that just weren't, they didn't exist. Uh, the plane would have to be too heavy. The engines could not carry it. And the fuel that was necessary would overload the plane. So uh, it didn't happen until uh, through the first few years, although there were uh, transatlantic flights, but they were not nonstop and they were uh, and they were not done uh, by individuals. And they were also not done all the way to Paris. So they were from... New York to the you know to Ireland um, to the the very beginning of the continent, but not all the way to Paris. So this was more than um, thirty three thousand miles, and um, Ortig put this uh, up again in nineteen twenty four when the first contest um, expired, and he. Um, this time, thought that there was a reasonable possibility that people would be able to make it across. Um, he he um, has this available, and there are, because people in the aviation industry are trying to make a reputation, and there was no better way of making a reputation than capturing the, uh, the headlines, and by 1925-26, the newspapers are in love with the airplane. Uh, in fact, many newspapers are also sponsoring contest. Yeah, I, because, to, I actually wanted to yeah. jump in right there and maybe Please. we could talk just a little bit about that context because uh, th- this uh, this really is um, an attempt to make news on the part of um, on the part of the news organizations themselves, isn't it? This is true. This yeah. is true. And this was one of the ways it, one of the ways in which you uh, uh, you made news. That is that you, uh, you you put some money up and then you had some daredevil or a group of daredevils uh, make uh, make their best efforts to 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 win that money. Yeah, this is kind of, of the origin. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is kind of, I used to work in the uh, in journalism a little bit, and this is kind of the origins of what I would call stunt journalism, which is uh-huh. now, which is now everywhere. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, people just doing wacky things, like the guy who lived for a year uh, according to uh, what you would find in Leviticus. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yes, that guy. Yes, you know, yes. Or, or people who sat on top of flagpoles right, exactly, as long as they could. Exactly. That's exactly or danced it. as long as they yeah, could exactly. and stay on their feet. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, but this is kind of the origin of that, and it's really making news. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of bread and circus uh, that is sponsored by uh, news organizations. And, and uh, I just found, I found it very interesting that um, Lindbergh was – a part of this that it really couldn't have happened any earlier and it could have happened later, but Lindbergh was the first kind of yeah. big example of this. Absolutely. Uh, and he became, interestingly enough, I, I mean, he, he, this is what drew his attention to the possibilities of this flight. Uh, the news organizations that paid attention to what he did uh, projected him into world fame and uh, it accomplished what he wanted, that is, that he accomplished what he wanted. He got to use uh, the newspapers and, and the publicity that they provided for aviation's purposes, for his own purposes. And then at the end, he's in, he finds it impossible to live with the celebrity that, that uh, you know, all this had cooked up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it was, it, as you point out, since there was a beginning of this kind of exchange where, where you know, when you're going to become a celebrity, the exchange that you make is that you're going to use the newspapers for your for your own purposes, and they're going to use you. And you and there's a compliant and there's a complicity, right? You've got there's a kind of codependency, and he couldn't deal with the other half of that. Yeah. He couldn't deal with the intrusions. He couldn't deal with the fact that his life had become uh, all of his private things had become public, and and that he had become. Uh, this thing that he he himself did not recognize. Okay, okay so, but that's part of the latest. Story. Yeah, let's step, let's step back then. So he hears about this prize, and uh, he and this is really one of his. I actually, um, uh, to be a little bit uncharitable uh, to him, um, this is his one great idea: how to do this. He has an idea that I think nobody else has about how exactly. to pull this thing off. Exactly. Uh, in fact, I mean, one of the challenges uh, when I started this book was something that William Buckley wrote in a uh, in a review of uh, of an earlier biography of Lindbergh by Brandon Gill. He said that, that and he was very charming in in the way that he wrote. And Brandon Gill was a friend of his, his and he says that, you know, my friend started with this uh, with this book about Lindbergh, and and it's a great book, and it talks about a lot of things that Lindbergh did. But there's one challenge at the center of that book that I don't think that he was that he he dealt with, and that is why would something that was essentially a stunt, a sports stunt. Um, Capture not only the imagination of the world, but last for more than 15 minutes, and and project this guy into uh, into heroism, mm -hmm. not just simply into into you know great sports figures, not just Babe Ruth. He was Babe Ruth plus so many other things. He became a kind of international figure. Uh, why? What? What was so important about this? Um, and so th that was I took that up as kind of my challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but to go back to your question, you're, uh, here's Lindbergh. He's, he, he sees that there are possibilities, and uh, what, what he was before that was one of many, many unknown uh, people who toiled with airplanes. And here was a possibility for doing something that would uh, project him into a much bigger field. Uh, he wanted to do it. He had no money. He had no plane. He had no training, <laughs> and he wanted to do it. And and. The ambition and the audacity is great. I mean, there are certain elements that are extraordinary about him, and this is one of them. Uh, so he sets himself, he sets plans. And Lindbergh, with, just like, like with taking part of a machine, he is great in sitting alone and writing down plans. You know, he's got he's got four or five different plans. One is the plan how to catch cat, cat, 
catch people's imagination. Uh, one is the plan for actually getting the plane. One is the plan for how do you plan for packing the plane and getting it across the ocean. Uh, one is the plan for how he's going to teach himself navigation. All of these plans. He, this guy's 25 years old. He wants to do something. He's never flown a plane uh, over a long distance except as part of this, um, you know, couple of hundred miles that he flew um, as an air, as as an airmail pilot. He um, he was very good. He was an extraordinary pilot. And he had great instincts, but that's it. Now, what's, what's he going to do? Um, so he, he decides that um, he's got to raise some money. Meanwhile, there are great aviators. There are people who have made their reputation in World War I, uh, people who were dogfighters and, and uh, daring, dare, uh, you know, very stylish and daring. And then there was Admiral Burr. I mean, there was Richard Bird who had made, who had made history by flying to the North Pole. And he was going to do this. He was competing. And then there were others who, who had been uh, uh, great navigators, and, and they were going to compete. And over the next few months, um, six different efforts, uh, I mean, six different people in several different efforts, perish in trying to get their planes off the ground. And other planes, like birds and Chamberlain, another flyer, um, suffer crashes. <laughs> there were several problems about getting a plane across the ocean. One of them was that uh, you needed to fill a plane with more fuel than anybody had ever filled a plane before. And that fuel was flammable, and that fuel was heavy. Uh, so how do you deal with that? Plus, you've got to fly over places where uh, you've got to make a choice. You've got to Essentially, you can make the flight much longer and fly over places where ships go back and forth. And if you fall, if you fall into the ocean, they'll see you, and and perhaps they they can even save you. Or you can go across what was called the Great Northern Route, which would take you where no shipping can go, take you over uh, the ice territories and areas where nobody will know if you disappeared. Um, Lindbergh chose that one because that was shorter. He was developing a theory. The theory was that you need to get from here to there by conserving as much fuel and weight as possible. The most important thing was to fly light. He was the only one who had this idea. The others thought differently. They thought that they would equip a plane with everything that it needed. It could be luxurious. It would be heavy. It would carry three or four people because you needed a navigator and a pilot and you needed a mechanic and you needed a radio man um, so that they would carry three or four crew members. And then they would just strap on as many engines as necessary to make up for the, you know, to, to create, to provide the power. And they would try to find as long a runway as possible so that it would allow the plane to build itself build as much momentum as necessary, get itself off the ground, and fly across the ocean. Um, this failed three times um, with deadly consequences. Uh, the last time that it failed was when a pair of Frenchmen tried to cross the ocean from Paris to New York and disappeared. And this happened within weeks, within a couple of weeks of when 
Lindbergh thought that he would himself try this. Um, what was wrong with this theory? Lindbergh thought what was wrong with the theory was that um, the planes were much too heavy. And by the heavier the plane, the more fuel you needed. The more fuel you needed, the heavier the whole package was. The heavier the whole package was, the, the dangers of takeoff were enormous. And then uh, that was a problem. Uh, except for the, the Paris flight, the other two never made it past takeoff. Mm-hmm. And um, the planes incinerated. Once they, they were not able, you know, they bounced up and down a couple of times, and then they all flipped over. And then they, the fuel caught fire, and and uh, they, uh, the people in them were burned to death. Lindbergh decided that he was going to take a, a light plane, and it's true that a light plane is going to be buffeted by the winds and by storms and by other things, but he was willing to take that chance. He was going to take a light plane, fill it with uh, – the plane was going to be stripped to its bare essentials, and it was going to be filled with fuel. It would essentially be like some described as a plank of wood. With uh, with fuel, with fuel tanks uh, strapped to it, and uh, and he was going to try to get that across the ocean. Nobody trusted him to do this. I mean, airplane manufacturers did not want to get stuck with a guy crashing their plane, even if he paid for it, because it would ruin their reputation, it would ruin their business. So he couldn't get a plane. He was looking at all of it. Finally, found a small company out in San Diego, Ryan Airlines, that was willing to make the plane. And while other planes that were going across, for instance, the Bird plane was would cost well over $100,000, Ryan was going to make this plane for $6,000 plus the cost of the engine. Altogether, it would cost close to $12,000, much, much less than the other planes. It would have nothing in it except for fuel, a few gauges, and a wicker seat for him to sit in. And that was it. His head was literally, his head carved a kind of uh, space in the ceiling because uh, he was a tall guy, six foot two and a half, and uh, and and this was made low. The ceiling was made. I call it a ceiling, but it was it had the top of the cockpit. It was made low so that uh, it would have the proper aerodynamic uh, benefits. And um, there were a lot of innovations. But and Lindbergh did one thing that none of the others did, and that is that he went there and he watched as the plane was being constructed. It was constructed to his to his uh, requirements. It was constructed in two months, and uh, it would take longer. There was no way that he would be able to win this uh, contest because the others were well ahead of him. And the plane would cost twelve thousand dollars. The problem here was that he didn't have twelve thousand dollars. He didn't have two thousand. He had two thousand dollars, and that's about it. To skip over that quickly, uh, he, he was able to get some people in St. Louis who had dreams about making St. Louis the airport hub of the United States. Uh, he was able to get them to back him and to raise the money for it. So money was raised. He signed a contract with Ryan. Ryan, in fact, came in exactly on time two months later with an, air, with an airplane that he was able to fly. Lindbergh still is not being mentioned in newspaper articles because everybody else is paying attention to Bird, Chamberlain, and a, a number of other flyers, and including those from France. Lindbergh makes a record-breaking flight from San Diego, San Diego to St. Louis and from St. Louis to New York. Finally, uh, and the newspapers uh, pay attention to him, and um, he becomes not only... Uh, as someone who's, who's described in, in the newspapers for as as 
uh, handsome, young, and a daredevil, but he becomes the favorite. On he becomes an underdog, but a favorite, um, a kind of pet of the, of the uh, newspapers. And um, because he was unknown, and because he was so handsome, and because newspapers were running pictures, and because of the fact that the others were all um, so established and, and, and so respected, uh, his story takes on an enormous uh, kind of uh, a, a curiosity, a fills of curiosity uh, and takes on a, a, a real a kind of symbolic importance. So here, six men had died. There was a contest between three here in the United States about who would get off first between Bird, Chamberlain, and now this latecomer who came late with this tiny little plane who thought he was going to make it across the ocean. And there's one more, one more innovation. And this innovation drove everybody crazy. He was going to try to do it himself. <laughs> he was going to try to stay awake well over 30 hours, fly this crude contraption that was, that had, he was not going to put a radio on because the radio was too heavy. So he was going to try. He was going to fly. There would be no radio contact. There would be no navigation assistance from the ground or from the from the ocean. Others would be getting regular reports from ships through radio contact. And he was going to do it alone. Bird flew with four people. Chamberlain was going to fly with two co-pilots. This guy said he was going to stay awake through the night, through the day, whatever it took, and he was going to make it to Paris. So this took on an enormous uh, uh, kind of aura of, of um, uh, you know, this kind of Horatio Alger, uh, you know, uh, uh, story. Newspapers fell in love with it, and they played up the contest. Problem, as I mentioned before, Two men try take off from France. Lindbergh is so shook by the idea that these guys are coming from France, and they are great airplane pilots, that he started thinking about something else that would capture attention, and maybe he would fly the other way around. That is to say, over the Pacific. That goes on for a day or two. These guys took off from France. No news. And within two or three days, France is thrown into, into uh, uh, a kind of, and the entire nation is thrown into mourning. These two men, France had, France itself, the country had, had been taken over by this notion of flight and the, 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 the romance of flight and, and what it might mean. It was in the forefront of, of uh, all the nations in the world in terms of this love of, of the technology and the and what the airline represent, and what the airplane represented, and here were these two men who took off daredevils who said they were not afraid to die, that they were going to conquer the ocean, and they disappeared. Even to this day, we don't know where they are, what happened to them. They they disappeared, and France, the 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 feeling in France was so. So down that the ambassador, the American ambassador, wired the State Department, asking the State Department to suggest to all who were participating in this contest um, to hold off, because he, he was certain that the response in France would be 
violent, especially because there were rumors that that Americans had, had not given the, the right uh, weather information to the two flyers and uh, that perhaps that had played, played a role in their disappearance. It's not true, but the, the rumors were uh, believed enough so that the American flag was torn down in France. Uh, and so Ambassador Herrick asked that, that nobody do this for a while. Didn't matter. Here in the United States, they weren't paying attention. They continued with their plans. And when Limburg got to New York, he saw that everybody else was doing it. He was going to do it too. Uh, May 20th, um, a whole week before that, he uh, there were rains in New York and there, there were rains across the ocean. So therefore, it was dangerous for anybody to take off um, in these tiny little planes, uh, especially in a tiny little plane like his. Um, so it, everybody was delayed. But everybody was anxious, and the newspapers kept playing it up. And they were, I mean, after a while, there was nothing much that they could write about the weather, so they they were playing up every aspect of the flight and of the contest. And uh, finally, Lindbergh gets um, um, a weather report that says that it might be clearing um, by the next day, uh, May twentieth. He realizes that the only way he's going to steal a jump on the others is if he takes that chance. And uh, May 20th, early in the morning, night before he prepares, uh, he um, scooted out of a play that he had gone to with uh, a couple of his friends, and uh, they they go out to Roosevelt Field um, in Long Island, New York City, and uh, they start their preparations. He had been up for um, more than uh, about 20 hours. And now after all those preparations at about 12 o'clock, he's driven back to the hotel in New York City where he's going to take a couple of hours of rest. He asks a friend of his to sit outside and to watch and nobody serve him. And suddenly, uh, just as he's about to fall asleep for a couple of hours, um, his, I mean, he has a knocking on the door, opens it up, and it's his friend standing there. And he says, come in, what's the problem? And he says, uh, gee, I'm scared. I, I what am I going to do without you? And, and Rick says, uh, in his, uh, in, in, in the way he describes this, that was it for the sleep that night. And, um, he wasn't able to fall back to sleep, threw the guy out as soon as he could. And, uh, by 2.30, he sets out for the, um, for the airfield. Bottom line is that he, he had not slept for 30 hours before he gets into the plane. And that means he's going to stay another 33 hours uh, without sleep. Um, this turns out to be the single most challenging part of the flight. Um, takes off from Roosevelt Field early in the morning of May 20th, 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, he had a series of different um, cutoff points where if things did not work, he would turn back. Uh, one of the major ones was that he would see if he was on target with his map, the map that he had laid out, a map that he himself had taught, that was based on the navigation that he taught himself in San Diego while the plane was being built. And if he was on target within a couple of degrees, he was going to go forward, and that means he was going to make the decision to go over the ocean. And at that point, nobody was going to know what happened to him for quite a while. So it was an important decision. He gets to Nova Scotia, which was the check, the point where he was going to check, and he sees that he's remarkably on target. And so he makes a decision to go further. Um, the 
several times through the flight, he faces uh, storms, ice storms. Um, he has to go very high up. He has, then he has to bring himself down because ice develops on the wings, which is the single most dangerous thing that could happen to him. And to a plane making its way across the ocean, uh, ice would kill all the, uh, well, it would kill the balance of the wings. It would also kill uh, his, um, his gauges. And he would not know what's happening. Therefore, he would not be able to control altitude and everything else. And it was, it was extremely dangerous. And fortunately, he was able to, correct that by bringing the plane down into a lower altitude where uh, it, it would melt, the ice would melt, and um, he makes his way for many hours across the ocean through, through these storms and through an ice storm and, and uh, through a cloud uh, that is filled with uh, a kind of terrifying ice. And suddenly he turns around and there are phantoms in the plane. And he doesn't know. He he, he, he describes it 25 years later in, in the book that wins the Pulitzer Prize for St. Louis with the same sense of reality as if they were actually sitting there. And he believed to the end of his life that phantoms joined him across the ocean. And uh, they have no substance, but they are there and they are real to him. And um, they stay with him for a while. And then as as suddenly as they were there, uh, they suddenly departed, and and it helped him stay awake. That plus every once in a while slapping his own face and so forth, he finally is over Paris. Uh, it's 33 and a half hours after he took off from New York, and as I said at the beginning, he sees all this light, he doesn't know where he is, and he turns around again, sees the Eiffel Tower, and finally he decides, yes, that's where he, he ought to be. And, uh, well, if there's light down there, it's not a city. It's, he's not going to land on top of people. It is still the airport, and uh, he he finds the proper place. He's about to land, and he is scared because he's coming to a place where he has 27 cents in his pocket, or roughly so, no toothbrush, no reservation in, the, in a hotel, and no visa. Comes down, and it's tumultuous. It's 100,000 people breaking down barriers, pushing down gendarmes, breaking past everything to get to him. And uh, it's incredible. Suddenly he's caught up, two people pick him up on his shoulders and they take off his helmet. And uh, meanwhile, he's begging for the police to protect his airplane, mm -hmm. which he loved, uh, which he identified with, which he gave gratitude. And just as he's about to land, he's got an entire factory at Ryan that worked day and night. He's got his mother who raised him and was alone with him and took care of him. He's got, um, he's got the backers in St. Louis who put their money together. The one thing that he gives great gratitude to in, 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 in his recollections, even many years later, is his plane. In fact, the first biography that he publishes about him says is we, him and his plane. As I said before, he has this enormous ability to, to, that create a link and a, and, a, and a kind of relationship with machines much, much better than with human beings. And so before he lands, he gives he, this encomium to, to the plane that had taken him across the ocean, and it had been great. And now he was afraid it was going to be destroyed. He begs them to take care of his plane. He, meanwhile, is being hustled off on the shoulders of these soldiers, uh, two men who had picked him up. Uh, and his hat is placed on somebody else. And that is to say, his helmet, uh, leather helmet. And because the helmet was placed on someone else, everybody's, you know, focusing on that guy. He, meanwhile, is 
scooter off to a, 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 an office in one of the hangars. Um, and this becomes part of a new story. Uh, it, really, it's the story of how Ambassador Herrick in France takes this guy who had no education, no exposure, no no expectation, no knowledge about how he's going to deal, and he's now in the midst of an uh, unprecedented situation. And the relationship between France and the United States was, was quite touchy and thorny. And he could say something, especially in a period of time now when France itself was kind of in mourning over the loss of its, fly, of its pilots, he could say something that would touch off an international incident easily. And Herrick is, is attuned to that. He makes his way to Lindbergh, tells him, you stay with me. That's the care Lindbergh's problem, not where he's going to stay. Um, and over the next week, Herrick watches over Lindbergh, guides him, and Lindbergh himself is sufficiently modest, willing to listen, understands the situation very quickly, uh, and he's transformed into a world figure mm-hmm. within that week. Remember, this was a rough, poorly educated guy who grew up on a farm, who was a member of the barnstorming team, and now he's going to, he becomes an extraordinary diplomat. Herrick himself is in awe of this machine that he kind of helped create. Uh, hundreds, thousands of uh, possibilities come raining in on him. Uh, he could, he could um, endorse watches, uh, motor oil. He could, he could appear in films. Uh, people wanted to sign him up for vaudeville appearances on radio. Millions upon millions of dollars, literally, are offered to him, and Lindbergh maintains this this extreme dignity in this period of time when, in the United States, this was twenties when money was was the one thing that everybody seemed to think that could make anybody do anything in the United States was money, and here was this guy from the Midwest who did not drink, who refused to carouse, who had come to Paris and said that he owed everything that that he had accomplished to the great work that has come before him in France and the flyers and the two people who, who disappeared had laid the path and he was their partner. He set everything right. So I think a large part of the puzzle about what made this such an extraordinary thing was this combination of events. Young man, uh, somebody who was the underdog, somebody whose theory about what the way to make it across the ocean went against everything else that was being accepted. Someone who who competed against these men who had been dog fighters and and that's a larger point. He was he was fresh. He was untouched by war. This was remember, World War Two had finished. France was filled with people who were crippled, people who had lost relatives, people who, who to whom World War One was a reference point. And the, the terrible bloodiness of that war was something that that uh, that bogged their imagination. And he was someone fresh, untouched by war. He had not served in the war. He had not been in the war. He had not he had not fought anybody. He had not he had not killed anybody. He had shown that you could do something that was brave and great and courageous, and it didn't have to be involved in killing other people. Yes, there were others who were heroes in the 20s who captured imaginations, Babe Ruth and, and uh, Al Capone and, and uh, people who sat on top of flagpoles. 
all sorts of diversionary figures, but here was somebody suddenly who had done something really special, and he had done it outside of the context of war, and he had beaten the old warriors who refused to learn about modern uh, about the way you, you dealt with modern technology. And he had come to Europe, and he, the ambassador of the United States presented him as the single best representative of what the United States was. You people in France had been used to, he said, the ugly, uh, he didn't use these terms, but essentially the ugly American, the, 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 the um, uneducated uh, rich person comes around, throws money around, and thinks that everybody's going to bow down to him. This is the real America. And, and Lindbergh played that role perfectly. And um, he was impossibly handsome. And, and uh, he made it alone. Calvin Coolidge, when he welcomed him back, that was, was the one major point. He was the man who had kind of tied into the American, uh, um, <clears throat> the American narrative, that is, of individualism, of making it alone. Everybody else had a team. He did it alone. Mm-hmm. And he had, turned, he had, had the, 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 the kind of dignity and presence to turn down all this money that wanted to convert him into, into a commodity. And he kept, his, he, he kept loyal to his vision about aviation. Mm-hmm. And um, just a couple of weeks later, Bird makes it across the ocean. Chamberlain makes it across the ocean. But if you take a look at their flights, which were rat- all kinds of, of mishaps, both of them almost died in, in the landing. Landings were crash landings, and they didn't make it to where they had wanted to. And he was this simple flyer in this simple plane who had made it exactly the way he had planned it. Um, he emerges from there a world hero. Everybody wants to have a piece of it. And so, I mean... It, 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 it's a situation where celebrity rained down upon him, and he did not allow it to crush him at this moment. At this point, yeah, I wanted to. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to have you talk just a little bit about how, in a sense, it all goes um, belly up for him. And you're going to have to do so very quickly because <laughs> he, he, after a while, he yep. refuses to play this role that he's been given. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, well. Celebrity becomes a challenge for him, and um, ultimately he gets married. He has a son, and his son is kidnapped, and he holds the tablets responsible for this because of their intrusions in his privacy. But by this time, Lindbergh is also connected with a man named Alexander Carell, who is a, 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 a brilliant scientist, but also a, a, a strong racist, a person who had many, many weird theories about immortality, and Lindbergh becomes an acolyte. Uh, it's not though that Carell's responsible for what happens to Lindbergh subsequently, because Lindbergh himself was somebody who, as I said before, had uh, he had uh, a great ability to to to, um, to connect with machines, but not with human beings. He had a great ability to to connect with abstract ideas, but not with reality. And uh, he was offended. Uh, remember, by the 1930s, the presidency of the United States, and he, he, Lindbergh was a hero for good times. He was unable to deal with the bad times. He was unable to take anything from his heroism and kind of lend it to the American people. By this time, he had caught, he had, despite the fact that he hadn't sold out, but he had done is to to be handled by a group of people who had aviation in mind and used him as a face of aviation. He became very much tied into the idea of helping and, and uh, promoting airline air monopolies, and uh, he had made a great deal of money on this. Um, and he had a, 
no sense of connection to the common American people. Uh, in fact, he, he, he thought of them as unruly. He thought of the United States as having become mongrelized by the fact that it had allowed all kinds of racists to come into the United States. What had made him a hero were a whole lot of other skills. But he'd been projected and lifted way above his level of competence. And people wanted to know what he thought about, all kinds of things that he had no expertise about and no real... Uh, you know, he, in France, he'd been very good at keeping his mouth shut about things that he was not good at. But by the 1930s, he didn't do that. And he fell in love he, and, and with the notion of regimentation, of control, of power. Uh, he flirted with Nazism by the late 1930s. Mm-hmm. He became leader of the American First Committee. Uh, he... Um, thought that uh, Germany should be the nation behind which uh, the United States the United States should get behind Germany and not behind Britain and France. He had uh, disdain for the democracies, a great love for the totalitarian regimes. And uh, it's the second act of his life, which uh, which turns him into a, a, a tainted hero. Uh, he becomes very unpopular in the United States. Although among a small group, that's to say those who, who favored um, the uh, neutrality policies and the policies of, of uh, pro-Nazism in the United States, he becomes uh, their favorite. Uh, and and uh, um, has falling out with President Roosevelt. He's denounced by men, many cabinet members as, as pro-Nazi. Um, and um, it's 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 downhill from there. He wants to serve in World War II, Roosevelt and and refuses to give him a commission. He nonetheless finds a way around that, uh, and does serve a little bit in the in the uh, in the Asian um, theater. Because, despite the fact that we were fighting Germany, uh, he and he did not he he did not feel that uh, that Germany should be destroyed, but he had a great disdain for Asians and Orientals whom he considered inferior. And this, with his racial theories, he published an article in Reader's Digest about, uh, if you read it, it, it kind of makes you shiver a little bit about the, the overt racism. And um, up in the Asian theater, he, he flies he flies a number of, of, of uh, a good many, a tens of, of, um, of uh, uh, flights dropping bombs. And later on, we'll talk about how his notion about flight, which was great, and it was going to bring peace and so forth, had been corrupted. Mm-hmm. But while he was flying uh, and dropping bombs, um, he didn't, it didn't yeah. seem to concern him all that much. Yeah. Uh, even the fact that he was dropping those bombs over people he had never seen, could not see, and what he was doing was bringing technology to, yeah. you know, to bear on destruction. Then there's the third act in the 1950s when he is rehabilitated, very much like our celebrities today. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a truly r- remarkable story. I mean, it's a you know I, I think we say very casually that there are lots of American lives, like that's an American life. But his is really, you know, there's just um, there's something about it which uh, you know it makes you very happy uh, it, it, about the way Americans do things, and it also makes you very sad. Mm. At least me. I mean, it's all it's all kind of in us in our kind of um, wacky individuality. I'm not quite sure what to say. I'm not being very eloquent here about it. But in any event, uh, Tom, uh, thank you very much for writing the book, and thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, the book is called The Flight of the Century, Charles Lindbergh and the Rise of American Aviation, and I suggest that you go out and buy it and read it because it is a terrific read. Tom, why don't you close the interview for us by telling us what you're working on now? Um, right now, I've, 
I've started looking at some papers, uh, interesting uh, collection of papers that were uh, the letters that were sent to New York City and to the mayor the day after the World Trade Center was bombed. Uh, I, uh, they are enormously interesting to me uh, from all over the world, from people of various different levels, uh, and uh, what they thought this meant, and, and, and uh, just to give us a, a different insight into. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, you know, September 11th is about. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic and really interesting project. It sounds quite close to home too. I admire you. I don't know if I could. Uh, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I still haven't seen any of the 9/11 movies or any of that business. I don't. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I, yeah, I can't. I can't. I don't want to do it yet. I'm yeah. not that brave. But anyway, Tom, thank you very much for being on the show. I really uh, enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye bye. You too. You've been listening to an interview with Tom Kessner about his new book, The Flight of the Century, Charles Lindbergh and the Rise of American Aviation. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music.